This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Elliot Perlman, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. It's nice to see you again. We travelled together. We did um, the Get Reading Tour a few years back, didn't we? We absolutely did. We were spreading the joys and benefits and virtues of reading and literacy yeah, we around did. the eastern seaboard, I think it was. I think it was. And we're still doing that here at Better Reading. Now, I'm going to introduce you. I mean, amazing body of work. And do you know, I think sometimes an introduction is like a CV. You know when you put your CV together and you, haven't, you probably haven't done that for years, but then you realise how much you've done? doing the research on an author and even though I have known about you my entire career you put something together and you think wow this is impressive but anyway here we go such a lovely thing to say (laughs) well it's true Elliot is an award-winning author with titles such as three dollars I mean I remember the day that came out what year can you remember it was it was 21 years ago it was March of 1998 there you go. And I just remember thinking it was quintessentially a Sydney book. Oh, well, it's a very, it's actually a very Melbourne book. It is, but it was, do you know why I'm saying that? Because for the first time I'd read an Australian book, which was something that I knew. Ah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I do know what you mean. It's, it's, it's urban Australia. That's what. Yeah. That's what I meant. That's exactly what I meant. And I remember that was very stark for me because there wasn't much around at that time. No, no. No. There, there are certain themes and topics that often get written about in Australia that tend to distinguish us as a country, which is great, but what it means is the things that most of us are going through, because most of us don't live in the outback and most of us are not Anzacs, that is right. And that's what was so stark, I think. You're right. It was an urban book. And that, I hadn't read something like that for a while. Well, I just can't remember. It must have been my first. It, it, was, a, it was a feeling, and I, I still have it, frankly, and it's even in Maybe the Horse Will Talk, that our situations are common to, well, not, not perfectly common, but are largely common to most developed countries but the way the issues get talked about generally are through the prism of someone in the US or the UK or you know Canada or or Europe but you seldom get the issues I talk about discussed unequivocally in Australia. That's exactly right that is see there you go you're the storyteller that's very succinct And it was what I wanted to say, but couldn't say it. Okay, back to the intro. Three dollars, The Reasons I Won't Be Coming, The Street Sweeper, amazing. Thank you. And Seven Types of Ambiguity. So Three Dollars won the Age Book of the Year 
the Betty Trask Award, the Fellowship of Australian Writers Book of the Year Award and was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. It also is now an award-winning feature film with a screenplay co-written by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I haven't seen it yet. Um, your second book, Seven Types of Ambiguity, is uh, was also shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and was heralded as a literary sensation across Europe and was a bestseller in the US. I mean, huge bestseller, wasn't it? Elliot often writes about problems facing us in the contemporary world and has been called Australia's outstanding social novelist. His latest novel, Maybe the Horse Will Talk, tackles the issues of sexual harassment in the workplace and corporate corruption. I mean, oh my God, how topical is this book? I, I, look, I hope so. The, the thing is, I can prove... And, and Penguin can prove that I started work on it well before the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's not an attempt to cash in on anything. I was thinking about this and not expecting that it would be ventilated as hugely as it has been, which is great, by the way, I should say. I'm pleased about that, but mm. just wouldn't want anyone thinking I quickly cashed in on it. Do you know what I think about your work is that I know you started out in law, but you stopped working in that kind of corporate environment, I don't know, a long time ago, right? Yeah, well, as a solicitor, I stopped, I stopped practising as a solicitor, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Mm. But yet you still, when you're reading your books, they still... it. It reads to me like you are writing at night and working in that corporate environment during the day. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, you know, the scars go deep. (laughs) They do. They obviously do. Or nothing has changed. Well, it's probably got even worse. Yeah. Um, You know, one of the things, in addition to uh, the corporate corruption, sexual harassment in the workplace, one of the things that I think is... Uh, really drives this novel, which really is there to an extent in $3 as well, is the precariousness of employment. Yes. That, um, you know, why do people put up with such appalling treatment at work where they are treated as a cross between a child, Mm. a a naughty child, and uh, somebody who's been conscripted into the military... Uh, with a psychopathic, you know, uh, senior officer in an organisation where the enemy is deemed to be you. Mm. Uh, You know, people are expected these days to be contactable 24-7. There are arbitrary targets plucked out of the air that you have to satisfy. Um, And there is now what gets called work-family conflict, where it's really just about impossible to satisfy the demands of work and the demands of family and social bonds. Mm. And so what I observed was that people almost always and quite understandably opt to satisfy the demands of work. Because they have a mortgage usually. Exactly. And they're terrified. And then you ask the question, well, why do they, you know, the opening line of maybe the horse will talk is, I am absolutely terrified mm-hmm. of losing a job I absolutely hate. Mm-hmm. And that's a, you know, that's a paradox because it, it begs the question, well, if you absolutely hate it, why are you terrified of losing it? And the 
unspoken answer that most Australians feel, and I'm talking about the 75 to 80% of the workforce who have a full-time job, is that they know, even without knowing a precise figure, a statistic, a percentage, they've got a feeling that it would be very hard to get a full-time job that doesn't economically humiliate them and that more and more Australians are either completely unemployed or they fall into this ever-growing unspoken about category, unspoken about really by either side of politics, the underemployed. Mm. And that's a huge category. Mm. They're the people who have some employment, they, have, they work some hours a week, but not enough. Nowhere, mm. They want more. It's nowhere near enough to feel safe, to feel comfortable, to be able to put a deposit on an apartment, let alone a house, mm. to pay off, you know, pay for an education, to pay private health insurance if you feel mm. you need it. I, I mean, I agree with all of that. I just want to go back to that point, like Australians feeling that they have to keep a job because they have to pay a mortgage. Do you know, I was speaking to an American friend of mine recently mm. and feeling this unhappiness of being in a corporate environment and he said well I have to keep the job because I need my health insurance. Yes now they're even worse off than we are because they? they don't have um, with the, well with the exception of Obamacare which is being mm-hmm. constantly it's it's under attack we at least have Medicare uh, which is terrific but successive governments have let it be eroded and they know that it's politically unpalatable to, you know, savage Medicare. So what they do quietly is... Just chip away at it. Yeah, they let, yeah. They let inflation, you know, cause a, a, a GP's bill to go from 16 to 20 to $25 yeah. or whatever, and gradually you're being asked to pay more and more, which fits in with the whole trend of society over the last, frankly, 40 years... Mm-hmm. Certainly in the years since I've been writing, when I started writing $3, which was the mid-90s, where all of the, well, not all, but an increasing quantity of risk that's inherent in a, in a mixed economy is being put on you. So government sort of backing off. They're not mm. protecting you. Um, big business, will, you know, is thinking short-term, um, I mean, so short term, it's not even necessarily in the interests of the shareholders and certainly not in the interests of of the ordinary person. Do you know, I'm feeling this and I don't, you know, I'm reading about it, but I couldn't reference anything directly. And I don't know whether you feel this, but I feel that the workforce is becoming a more casual workforce. But I think there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs out there. I feel that we're heading in this country particularly towards a terrible recession. But I also think that the idea of 40 hours a week or five days a week, that's, there won't be enough jobs. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Oh, yeah, and this, yeah. this started um, with, I mean, it, it's, there's a combination of factors and one is definitely technology, increasing mm. technological advance. But we hastened it like much of the Western world, you know, in a sense, copying the UK under Thatcher and the US under Reagan by saying, oh, we don't need to make anything here anymore. And so you can, you know, you find it very difficult to find any manufactured goods Mm. that will be made in Australia by Australians. And 
where did anybody think the jobs were going to come that would replace those jobs? And now, and this is where maybe the horse will talk comes in, the chickens are coming home to roost because uh, it's not just people that worked in manufacturing that are losing their jobs. Now, lawyers' jobs, legal jobs are going offshore, accountants' jobs are going offshore, and um, mm. so there, it's, it's difficult to find work in those areas. Mm. That, that enables people, particularly in the big end of town, to treat the people that work for them appallingly. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, I read somewhere the other day that Deutsche Bank has pulled 8,000 people out of London. I mean, what happens to 8,000 people? I mean, yeah. let's say... 40% of them get work. I mean, it's not going to be 100% of them get work. Exactly. And then yeah. you've got to ask, well, what kind of work will it be? And this is where, you know, the underemployed comes in. Because, mm. you know, t- technically, if um, if my brother-in-law, say in Sydney, mm. owned a sandwich bar and I don't work at all, I do nothing, I'm, I can't get a job or I won't, you know, I, I'm, I, I look for a job and I can't get one. So I'm unemployed. But my wife would work for my brother-in-law one hour a week, say, because on Fridays it's extra busy. Mm. So she comes in to lend a hand. She cleans up, cleans up in the back of his sandwich bar for just one hour a week. And if she's honest enough to declare it, she's not considered unemployed. Wow. But, you know, you say, wow, I'm going to tell you yeah. another even bigger wow factor. I'm not considered unemployed because I'm married to her. <gasps> And that's how, so how you, that's how you cook the books yeah. so that it looks like, oh, unemployment hovers between, you know, three and a half and seven and a half percent. But it's not true. Yeah. When you add, because the underemployed are perilously close to living like they're unemployed mm. and, and sometimes they are unemployed. Uh, and, you know, they can't begin to make plans for their future. They can't pay bills they you know they're terrible they can't take care of their children they're not living extravagantly but if something that they need in their house suddenly breaks because of built-in obsolescence Mm. they're in trouble Mm. and i want to um just touch on this briefly because i feel that it's valid i mean i get um some feedback on this podcast that i should veer away from politics but it's just not possible elliot it's not possible <laughs> not when you're, in, you're interviewing me <laughs> <laughs> that's right and not not when we read a book like this but i want to talk about the current state because it's not just in australia the the current state i think of turmoil and uncertainty it's you know the uk it's the us and it is australia um what's happening do you think okay it, on a on a micro level i think people are stressed to the to the max because of this economic uncertainty right. and um, and the economic uncertainty really comes from uh, you know as I've said the implementation of this kind of neoliberalism that we got from Thatcher and Reagan and I even have a character in three dollars warning and remember this is the late 90s mm. warning that if you keep this sort of thing up you're going to end up with some kind of uh, quasi-fascist government in a in a developed country in a first world country and at the time that seemed like the you know the crazed ramblings of a loony lefty from uni you know like i didn't believe you 
Right, well, a lot of people didn't believe me and they no. thought, oh, she, I, I've met characters like her, you know, mm. at, at university and, you know, they're fun to have a drink with but then you need to grow up and get real. Mm. Um, but uh, this is exactly what happened and, you know, my point was you can't keep ignoring so many people and their needs um, – People who didn't vote for any of these changes, mm-hmm. um, you know, many of them technological, so you get these uh, echo chambers of nasty racism, xenophobia, homophobia, misogyny. Um, you know, the so-called democratise... I'm sorry, I've left the economic side of it, but this is, this is relevant, I think, mm-hmm. because it's part of this culture of deregulation... So the internet comes in and we've never heard of it. We don't know what it is. We don't, you know, can't really imagine its effects. But you would think, well, the government should regulate this because otherwise people can say anything right from one school student saying terrible things about another school Mm -hmm. student to a group or a person, an adult, making racist, racist, sexist, homophobic uh, statements that you wouldn't be allowed to say, you know, standing in the middle of Pitt Street. Well, you wouldn't have had a voice, would you? No, no. no. You look at the Sydney <clears throat> Morning Herald online, for instance, and you read the comments now. They are so far away from letters to the editor, aren't they? Yeah, look, um, it's, <laughs> so it's, far it's, away. It's, it's, it was sold to us like um, the democratisation of of exchange. But in fact, it's it's become these little ghettos of hate, mm-hmm. little little pods of hate, mm-hmm. um, interspersed with either, you know, photos of lovely cute kittens, mm-hmm. or porn, mm-hmm. or gambling. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's what it's there for. That's what you just kind of summed it up there. That's and, what it is. And so all of this is, you know, if you mm-hmm. ignore the needs of of most people for long enough and you allow inequality to become as extreme as it's been in the developed world for about 100 years, Mm -hmm. the difference between richest and poorest um, and the number of people who are floating down the bottom, you know, sinking, Mm -hmm. I should say, down the bottom with no real safety net, if you allow this to go on for long enough, unchecked, um, people lash out in desperation. It's, you know, it's the political equivalent of you just having jammed your finger in the car door and you're in agony and um, I whisper in your ear, I'll point to you, the person who slammed the door on you. Mm. And it's, you know, it's one of those unmarried mothers or it's an immigrant who's probably here illegally or, you know, and mm-hmm. I whip you up. Now, you're in agony. Your finger's really sore and if I tell you, I can get rid of them for you. You want me to so that that doesn't happen again? You're not in a position to be thinking clearly and maybe somebody said that sort of thing to you before and you've said no a number of times but you're, you've been in agony for so long now because this keeps happening to you that finally you go, bugger it, a plague on both your houses in the sense of Mm. uh, mainstream political parties, I'm going to vote for that lunatic because he's different and we haven't tried him yet Mm. and um, 
And I think that's sort of what you're seeing. And now we have to come, we have to come back from the brink of all of this. And ha- having said and all this... And will we? <clears throat> well, uh, you know, I don't want to make, t- you know, too big a, a claim or a, a demand on any one book. But what I hoped to do was to make people laugh, which is a, an aim I've not really had in mm. any of my previous books. And I thought people feel so stressed... Uh, I think I think we are suffering chronic stress in Australia. It is stressful for all sorts of different reasons, yeah. and it manifests in different ways for different people. Mm. And I think you know the people at the bottom are scrambling to get the hours of work they need in the gig economy to mm. try to approximate some kind of safety and security. And the people you know with the full time permanent jobs are stressed out because they're being asked to work absolutely ridiculous hours and subject to appalling treatment mm. frequently that that they know they have to they feel they have to take mm. because otherwise they'll they'll fall out of full-time permanent employment and so if i could make people laugh they will begin to um, you can you can start to talk about the problem if you're no longer as scared of it it's um, it's like a uh, you know slaying the dragon or, or um, you know, the emperor not having any clothes. If we can laugh at it, you, you feel a little bit better, you stop panicking, and then you can say, okay, there are a lot of problems. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here, let's let's talk about fixing them mm. and insist that our political leaders take our problems seriously. Well, I hope that works. I'm, at the moment, I think that um, politics is uh, is still governed by middle-aged white men with blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be the uniform, oh, doesn't it? Oh, Cheryl, that's grossly unfair. Some of them have no hair. <laughs> Some of them have no hair. Okay, tell me where it all started. I'm, I'm really curious because I don't think I know your career path. So tell me about where you grew up and how you came to writing. Uh, okay, so I grew up in, in Melbourne um, mm. and I grew up in a household where uh, I was very lucky because my parents were in education mm-hmm. and my father was an academic physicist and my mum was an English teacher. Do you and know there's a common thread there? So many authors that I speak with, either one or both or either parent were teachers. I, I should do a poll actually and um, and... More often than not, the parent that's a teacher is an English teacher. 
Right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, well, I think it. Um, I, I can tell you in my case, um, yeah. it meant that the the currency of conversation was books. Mm. So my sister's four years older than me, and when she started, she was a, a is still a voracious reader, a huge reader. I mean, you know, I read a lot, and she reads me under the table still, wow. and. You know, I knew as as a kid that, you know, if you want to be part of this conversation, uh, not that anyone was being tested, but um, to have a contribution at the dinner table or the more likely the sort of weekend lunch table where it was a longer meal and you could sort of hang around a bit, you needed to have an opinion on these books. And also, even though my father's background was science, he's a huge reader and so authors were, you know, really revered and books were, like in the, in the space where we're conducting this mm-hmm. interview, books were the wallpaper of my childhood. And so you'd see authors' names on the spines and even unconsciously you'd just know them and, and, uh, and so you weren't scared of them. And our place, our house was sort of a pretty progressive house and there was nothing that was off limits in terms of books, um, except because my mum was teaching HSC, um, she'd have a stack of books on her bedside table that we were told not to read, but only for a certain period. Until she read them. <clears throat> yeah, or in, usually reread them, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because she was about to teach them yes. again. Yeah. And she, she wanted to be really, um, you know, conversant in them. Um, and of course, if you're a you know little eleven-year-old smartass, um, you only want to read those books—the books that you're told yeah. you're not to read—and those books were, you know, not the books I was meant to be reading. But what actually happened was, and this was a difference between me <coughs> and my sister. Excuse me. Um, when she was very young, she was fed and gobbled up all of these those Enid Blyton books. Yeah. But in my case, um, you know, and maybe this gives hope to any parents of reluctant readers, I, um, I was sort of given those books or shown that I could read them and I read them and I just thought, oh, you know, nothing's really... I'm not buying this. It seemed like, I don't know, 1950s England which seemed almost, you know, Victorian, I mean, in, in terms of the year and not the state. Yeah. Um, and I thought, this doesn't speak to me. Where's the Greek kid? Where's the, you know, where's, yeah. the, where's the black kid? And where's the anxiety? Mm. And where's the, you know, like, mm. I'm, the, you know, how come no one gets divorced? Mm. Where, you know, nobody gets really sick. Um, like, this, is, this doesn't resemble any world I know. And it's boring. Mm. Um, so I, this business of reading that my parents are so big on, it's a, you know, it's a con. And then because of the books that were, temporarily off limits on my mum's bedside table, I started reading, you know, books for much older students and I was smitten. And can you remember any of them? Yeah, sure. Um, One was um, A Kestrel for a Knave, Barry Hines. It was made into the movie Kess. Um, Another was A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I'm, I'm showing my age because these books were... On the then, and you were reading those <coughs> as an eleven, twelve-year-old guy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, I, I don't want to pretend I was 
getting yeah. all of it. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> but but um, I think that's the beauty of reading. Children just take in what they are ready to take in at the time. Yeah, and look, I mean, my mum used to tell a, a funny story that um, she taught kids Lord of the Flies in maybe, I don't know, year nine. Yeah. And then they did it again in year 11 or year 12. <clears throat> and one of the students said to my mum, Golding's got better. Yeah. Like he's become a better writer. Yeah. <laughs> in, wow. the three year, in the three years since I've read it. Yeah, he's, he, been... he's fixed it up. <laughs> Practicing. Um, which is, you know, really telling. It and, is. And, and you find it's not just even, even for adults, and it's not necessarily, you know, their, their intellect or anything. It's more, there's certain uh, pieces of art that will go on to be treasured by you. Mm-hmm. But if you somebody introduces you to them at the wrong time because you're busy or you're stressed or you're not well or something, um, you can, you just won't appreciate it. Mm. And so you need, with any luck, you'll think, oh, this is worth going back to at another stage. But I remember having this experience with um, the short stories of Raymond Carver many years ago. you know, I was just talking to Mem Fox about that. Really? About Raymond Carver. Really? Saying one of the most memorable periods in my life, I had a partner who read me a a Raymond Carver story, just one story every night. Well, uh, I I adore Raymond Carver. So do I. But there can be times in your life, if you've been reading, um, so for people that haven't read Raymond Carver, he's sort of a a master of, of spare writing. So you won't find many adjectives or adverbs in his writing, including in his poetry, I should say, which, and his, his poetry is fantastic as well. And so if you are, um, you know, and, and people need to be reminded that you can like different types of things. So you can like very florid writing and then you can be in the mood for very spare writing. And, you know, you don't have to nail your colours to the post and say it's, it's like my football team I support the Swans or the Blues or whoever and, you know, no one else ever. But why can't you have diverse tastes in in all kinds of art? And my experience of Raymond Carver, and this is where the, the point I wanted to make was that he almost, and I should say I never met him, but through reading him, he taught me how to read him. And what happened was a friend of mine whose literary taste I admired... Um, was raving about this guy, Raymond Carver. And I think I, I, she might have loaned me one of his books or I, I bought it or I borrowed it from a library. And it was a collection of his short stories. And Which I read, I've read time over, yeah. Yeah, you know. And I read the first one in the collection. I thought, yeah, that's, that's okay. I, I'm not sure why she's raving. It was, that was fine, but nothing... I don't know why she's raving... I read the second one. I thought that was also good. Um, probably not any better than the first. Then I read the third. And the third was no better than the first or the second, but the penny had dropped. And I thought, oh, my God, I see what he's doing. This guy's a genius. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And how brave. And um, in a sense, reading his stories had taught me how to read him. And then, of course, I had to read all his stories and then I devoured his poetry and his essays and then I wrote the short story, The Reasons I Won't Be Coming, completely under the influence of Raymond Carver. 
So apologies to people who think, gee, that mm. sounds a bit like Raymond Carver. Well, do you know, <coughs> Mem and I were just talking about um, this earlier. Uh, I was saying it's the power of, because, you know, of course she writes picture books mm. and, and you've got young children, so yeah. you've probably read them. Sure have. But how you can get a story in 200 or 300 words you know, I mean, I think her writing is pure poetry. But you look She's at... She's got a special kind of genius. Hasn't she? Yeah. And then I started talking about Raymond Carver in terms of he can give you a snapshot of a life in how many pages. You know, you've already had all the arcs of storytelling in how many words. I mean, I think that's just incredible. Absolutely. I, Don't I was, you think? I was just having this conversation with my wife last yeah. night. Yeah. I can't believe we're talking about this in a yeah. podcast because I really would... Just talking about this last night. Mm. Do you read to your children? Every single night, even before they could, um, (laughs) even when they don't want me to. Um, We, one of us, does the reading. You know, usually while the other one's cleaning the kitchen, Mm. Um, and then uh, I'm required. Actually, my wife's required too. We read. I have two little boys, a four and a half year old and a three year old, and they each get to choose a book. And, and the, the reading parent reads the book to both of them and then reads the other child's book to both of them. And then we are obliged, because they insist, to tell them what they call a pretend story. So a pretend story is one that isn't in a book, or at least not yet, and it is, you know, an impromptu story. Mm-hmm. And what started happening is that the, the kids, particularly the four-and-a-half-year-old, has started telling us what he wants in them. You know, so... Um, so he's got them going, swirling I, around in his head. Yeah, so yeah. this one I'd like a horse and he lives in our back garden and, you know, so he started, <laughs> he's kind of giving us the ingredients that have to find their way. The characters. Yes. Yeah? Yes, yeah. and sometimes the scenarios. I love it. All right, just I just want to know how you came to writing. Okay, going back because we're almost running out of time. Um and why didn't I know this was going to happen? Because <laughs> you're such a great talker. Um, okay, so you grew up loving reading, so I got that. Um, but you then decided to study law, is that Well, right? I, I can tell you, even before any, you know, I got anywhere near university, I loved reading and I loved writing so much. And to, to put it really succinctly, yeah. um, I'm... Jewish on both sides, but I'm not a religious person and it wasn't a religious family. And I found in times of of personal difficulty, um, I got the closest thing I could find to spiritual comfort from reading. Mm, It's Um, the solace, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I felt with a good book, you're never alone. And it won't turn on you. It won't, you know, like children at school can be mm. your friend one day and not your friend the other day or you don't quite understand. You know, you can go back and turn the pages and find the bits that worked for you. And I thought, wow, you know, I would feel so happy if I could do even for one person what some of these writers have done for me. Mm. And, you know, and that persisted. And, and so I wrote, you know, the school plays and the, I was always the guy writing the stories and I'm a failed musician so I wrote songs for the bands I was in and, um, uh, yeah, and then, you know, I studied law but and, and I liked it too. 
I didn't love being a solicitor. I liked being a barrister. Why didn't you like being a solicitor? Uh, then you have to read Maybe the Horse Will Talk to okay. find out. I was working <laughs> I in, am going to right, read that, right. <laughs> I was working in the kind of um, mega corporate firms in the city and, um, you know, it was, it was hell even then. And and the the kind of um, oh this book sorry I thought you were referring to the short story gosh I've lost oh, track yeah. there <laughs> sorry yeah um, I have read this so you do you think it was the same back then oh as it's now? probably worse now I think yeah you know because when, you when, when I was earlier. writing the yeah. book I um, didn't just speak to lawyers that were my contemporaries but I spoke to younger lawyers and when people heard that I wanted to you know talk about corporate law firms um they would they were desperate to tell me to pour out a, a, a torrent uh of of horrible stories and i couldn't use them all you know because mm. i wanted the plot to be very taut and very so you tight. do that research yeah al- almost always um, oh, okay. i mean but I the, re- the, the research for this was nothing compared to the research for the street sweeper which was you know five and a half years and six trips to Auschwitz and and uh, the south side of Chicago. And, I mean, so the, yeah. the research for Maybe the Horse Will Talk was nowhere near as um, arduous or lengthy. Yeah. And, you know, just as well with two small kids, I couldn't do it. So being a solicitor, you were exper- having these experiences and that was a culture that you felt that wasn't for you. Y- yeah, well, I... I um, you know, you're you're supposed to in these places uh, take any extracurricular interests that actually helped you get the job, uh, and also any sense of irony that you have, and put it in the umbrella stand by the front door and just leave them there because you won't be needing them. Mm. And um, you know, I'll, I'll, I met some terrific people in in law school. Um, and you saw how many of them drank the Kool-Aid when they got in there. And I thought, you didn't used to be like this. And, yeah. um, you know, I didn't seem to feel I had a choice. There was, it was, I was never tempted to drink the Kool-Aid. I couldn't. Yeah. I just felt um, this isn't a healthy way to live. You couldn't comply. I couldn't see any role models there and the partners. And, and I don't mean to suggest that all the people there are, you know, um, psychopaths, <laughs> but the but the environment does give free rein to corporate psychopaths. So you will find uh, people who are not encumbered by empathy, or uh, you know, because how much easier would it be to get on in your workplace if you were just Machiavellian and uh, used all your intellect to um, to climb the ladder? Yeah. And you didn't care about the truth and you didn't care about hurting people. Well, that's what they say is called success, you know. I mean, that's how you get to the top, isn't it? Well, that's how a lot of people do, mm. yeah. And I don't mean yeah. to suggest that's only law yeah. firms either. That's you know, know. That's in all Everything. sorts of institutions and yeah. government bureaucracies and, and political parties. And Read Del Ferguson's book, recent uh, Banking bad. I mean, truly, that's yeah, well, a human banking. story. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the stories in there are just full. Well, I make was hoping to make, make mine funny. Yeah. Because I think people need it. Yeah. Okay. So when so you decided to start writing, that that's it. It's a huge transition from going to what I think is a job that's very very stable, right? To be a lawyer or a barrister. Well. 
<clears throat> you're, it's only as stable as, as you know, until you get until fired. Until it's not, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, there's, there's, as I say in the book, um, there's no safe anymore. No. Buying time is the new safe. Yeah. Um, so when did you think I'm just going to ditch all of this and start writing? Well, I was writing before I was even studying law. Right. So, I, you know, I wrote my first adult short story when I was 20, um, mm. adult in the sense of um, not being ashamed of it within a week of having written it. And um, That's a good description. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you, when, when you're sort of, you're, you're trying these things. I like that a lot. When I was at university. I'm going to use that. Yeah, by all means, you know, <laughs> please attribute it. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you're at university, yeah. um, if somebody says, would you like to meet for a coffee or a drink, yeah. It's perfectly acceptable to say, oh, I can't, I'm playing tennis or I'm, um, I've got band practice with my band, you know. But you can't tell somebody, I can't because um, I've got to go home and perfect a paragraph. Yeah, I'm writing know? a book. Yeah, that, or, or a short story or anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to see whether I can yeah. do this thing called writing. They'd think you're an idiot. So yeah. I didn't tell anybody. But no. I was, in fact, writing things when I was... Um, because I, I did a, a degree before law. Um, I did a, a four-year degree, an honours degree in uh, politics and economics. And then I did law. And all this time I was, um, I was writing, you know, little scraps of things and short stories and yeah. hoped that I could be a writer. And it wasn't until I was an associate to a Supreme Court judge, which I was after being a solicitor which was not quite nine to five, but much more nine to five than uh, being a, a solicitor in private practice in yeah. those firms, that I I thought, okay, now's the time. I'm going to take a deep breath and I wrote $3. I wrote the first draft of $3, my first novel, in a year by writing four nights a week and um, at least one day over the weekend because I looked at it as a um, as, as a, the Kennett government was paying me not very much it, uh, through the Department of Justice, I looked at it as a literary grant. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, Elliot Perlman. We've got to go. Um, I think we need to do another podcast shortly. But it's always a while between drinks for you, isn't it? How many years between this book and the last book? Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Um, uh. I can explain what I was doing, but yeah, it's been uh, it was twenty eleven. Yeah. When the streets we become. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm only bringing it up because I'm just thinking, when do I get to talk to you next? I mean, how long do I have to wait? I'll talk to you after lunch if you like. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. 
everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.